Welcome to Between the Stacks, a podcast presented by the Athens Limestone County Public Library. Each episode brings you into the library to meet our collection of people making an impact on the community of Athens and Limestone County, Alabama. Hello, we're back again with Between the Stacks. My name is Jennifer Baxter. I'm the library director for Athens Limestone County Public Library. And today I'm being joined by Dr. Sherry Williams, who is a historian and holds a PhD in history from Auburn University. Um, today we actually had the pleasure of having Dr. Williams do a presentation for us on her dissertation topic, which was titled, Come Now and Let Us Reason Together, Cooperative Extension Club's Empowerment of African-American Farm Women and Girls from 1928 to 1965. And I have to say, um, Dr. Williams, it was a fantastic presentation. I love the idea. I love the research questions that you posed. And um, I'm going to let you tell us who you are, a little bit about your past and what led you to get your PhD in history from Auburn. Well, thank you for having me and giving me an opportunity to share. Wow. Well, I, I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio, and I was greatly influenced by my southern grandparents. I had southern grandparents on both sides. And my mom's parents both were from a small rural village in Macon County, Alabama, called Creek Sand. And it was named supposedly after the Creek Indians that were in the area. And that was something I learned much later. But what started me on this journey to the PhD Surprisingly, it was doing family history research hmm. and, you know, did it for a few years. And then as I began to build this family tree, I just became more and more curious about filling in the blanks. You know, you get this pretty sterile information from vital records information and that kind of thing. And I really wanted to know more about what it was like during my ancestors' time. What were their lives like? Who did they see? What did they hear? You know, so that led to me diving into the history of the area. And I learned that, you know, contrary to what I had felt all my life or thought I knew all my life about the people that I came from, which I thought, you know, oh, they were enslaved, period, at the end of the sentence and not much more to say after that. Even after emancipation, I learned about you know, a family member who was in the first class of students at Tuskegee Normal and Industrial School and about, you know, ancestors who owned land in Macon County and uh, who founded a church and, you know, just the kinds of things that I wish I had known growing up as a kid but didn't, you know, have the opportunity to know. Mm-hmm. And so that just made the whole experience even richer and made me want to know more. And so long story short, I ended up getting involved in, you know, historic preservation in that area, which led to me enrolling in the doctoral program at Auburn University. So (laughs) that was a long answer, but um, hopefully I answered your question. Yeah, no, it was a very interesting answer. And in fact, I love the idea of um, digging into your past and learning who your ancestors were, because instead of having this general kind of blank understanding about them you really learned that they had these incredible characteristics and maybe gave them more shadow and depth and it sounds like they had a lot of deep character for the accomplishments that they made i'm still learning about them i mean i feel like i barely scratched the surface but you're exactly right it did make them three-dimensional people and for that i am grateful 
Yeah. So I want to point out to the listeners that we did record the Zoom. So we're excited to be able to offer that uh, as a link along with this podcast so that people can get some more in-depth information about the presentation and your work. But I I couldn't help but notice that um, in the background information about you that it says that you're the first African-American woman to be conferred a PhD in history from Auburn University. That's incredible. Um, Could you speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, it's, gosh, it's great to have that attributed to me, but it was totally like something that I didn't know when I enrolled in the program. And maybe I was about halfway through the program and I noticed that there was a photograph in the hallway of the department on the bulletin board of the first African American to earn a PhD in history from Auburn. It was, it was a man. So that kind of made me wonder, well, who was next and who was next and who was next? When did a woman receive a PhD? And so I was talking with a professor one day and he kind of gave me a light bulb moment and he said, well, if this person was the first, then that was sort of like, okay, that's your starting point. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to, to do any research past that year. And so that's when it all came to light and was confirmed. And I thought, oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's like I, I look at it both as like, oh, this is great. But it's, to me, it's also it conveys a lot of responsibility as well. Yeah. Uh, kind of what I talked about today in the presentation as far as paying it forward, mm-hmm. giving it back and putting it in service. I love when you did speak to that in the presentation. And I also really loved the part of your presentation when you talked about Um, these women learning these leadership qualities. And what you said is they're experiencing that inner emancipation or that that moment where they feel like, okay, I am worthy of this and I can do this. It just kind of gave me chill bumps. And I wondered how, you know, you, you said in the presentation that other people have sort of gone into this topic in depth. But what made you different was that you were trying to really think of it in that psychology kind of way, in that inner emancipation and that leadership development. So um, I guess, how did you come to connecting those ideas particularly together? Oh, well, the the project started out as a paper. I was in a uh, research and writing class. And, you know, I had already had that experience looking at home demonstration reports and um, was actually looking for ancestors, you know, kind of like, oh, boy, I hate to admit that, but that's the truth. Um, But as I was going through those reports, I started to see something else, like there's something else going on here. Like these women are learning, you know, how to be proud of themselves and learning how to value themselves and and learning positive self-image. So I just started to become more and more interested in that. Plus the fact that, you know, Laura Daly in Macon County and Amelia Platt in Dallas County were known civil rights activists. And so I started thinking about, you know, the Tuskegee boycott. I started thinking about the Dallas County voter registration movement and just really became interested in exploring whether or not this influence that these two agents had expanded beyond the scope of the local community domestic related activities. So I started to explore that in a research paper, wrote the research paper, and um, my 
professor at the time, uh, Dr. Melissa Blair, was intrigued by the topic as well. And, you know, she just really encouraged me as I was writing the paper. And then when the paper was finished, mm-hmm. she said, I think you have your dissertation topic right here. And, you know, along the way, I've read the secondary sources and read what other scholars have written about these programs and found confirmation that others recognized that women leaders were developed from these programs. But I just always had this burning question, well, how? How? How did this happen? (laughs) That led me to where we are now. So when you were digging and you were trying to figure out how, I mean, what, what did you come up with? Well, um, I will admit, when I first started reading the reports and I read about Mrs. So-and-so grew this many vegetables and her, you know, her vegetables are looking great and, you know, so-and-so made this garment uh, out of feed sacks and this woman, you know, she she made these improvements in her home and <laughs> it seemed to drone on mm-hmm. and on and on about these domestic activities and at first, I didn't recognize what was happening. But then when I realized that women were being encouraged to be leaders and project demonstrators and to serve on county councils and home demonstration councils, then that leadership aspect of it jumped out at me. And Mm -hmm. so then the question was, well, how do you correlate these domestic skills with leadership development? Mm -hmm. And then that's when I sort of borrowed from another discipline. It's called narrative analysis. And narrative analysis just allows you to look at a narrative passage and sort of read between the lines and extract information that you wouldn't if you just did like a more cursory read. Mm -hmm. And then, too, I had that definition or the mandate stated in writing from the United States Department of Agriculture about, you know, rural women will develop skills in public speaking and so on and so forth. So it all came together Mm -hmm. and painted a different picture for me where I was able to correlate engaging in domestic activity, how leadership capability or leadership skills flowed out of those things. And, you know, like a real simple example would be if a woman was selected by her peers to be an officer on the county council, then... And if she was president of that council, then she had to organize the meetings and communicate with people and present and public speak. So once I, I saw that these skills were there, but you just had to see it a certain way, mm-hmm. that's when it all started to come together for yeah, me. That makes a lot of sense. It's like you're saying there is something more buried into this program that existed. And you talked about how this could be a model for today. I'm always thinking of public libraries, but to me, there's a comparison there because what we're doing here with libraries or many of the social programs that are offered out there is that we're trying to develop people. And you talked a lot about the kinship aspect and also the education being very important in African-American culture. Right. You know, the point I was making about how it could be a, a roadmap or a blueprint for us today And I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, A lot of these agencies I mentioned, they were trained at historically black colleges and universities. And Tuskegee was like the epicenter for a model for African-American extension. And that it just flowed out of the approach that Booker T. Washington used when he first became principal. And he had to recruit students 
and his approach was he mounted on his horse and he rode out into these communities and he developed relationships with people, listened to their challenges and their needs. And he took all of that and, and used it to develop a program. And, you know, one early example would be the movable school. They took the school to the community <laughs> um, instead of expecting the community to come to Tuskegee, which for some of them, you know, or many of them, that would have been a hardship. Mm-hmm. So he set the model. And for us today, you know, I think about successful community mobilization and organization, and a perfect example would be Stacey Abrams' work in Georgia. And everything that I've read about that work, it is all about, you know, boots on the ground and, mm-hmm. and getting into communities and talking with people. We just talk about the need to sit on the front porch, mm-hmm. you know, and have conversations with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would think that that's easy to do, but for some reason, you know, it's easier to do a online poll yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, but that boots on the ground work is just absolutely necessary if you're really going to address the concerns and needs that people have. Absolutely. I I found an article about you um, online, and um, I noticed that you have a master's in public administration, and me too, so do I. So I think we, we might think about some things in the same way in terms of community. And in libraries, what I've seen, I've been doing this for about 12 years, and I've worked at a few different ones. We get so comfortable behind our desks, you know, and um, maybe it's any institution, really, but I'm just speaking from my experience. You get very comfortable in what you're doing, and you forget to reach out and connect because the community changes, that times are changing, the technology has made it happen at this incredibly rapid pace, and we really need to keep up with who we are serving, you know, and we can't do that if we're not talking to them, getting to know Right. Them. It is definitely a deliberate, you have to do it with intention, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. We had someone um, on the presentation today that didn't get to finish, and they sent me a question for you. She said, I didn't get to see the last part of the presentation or the Q&A, but I'm wondering, was there any pushback from the fact that these black women were getting leadership and skills training, as in, was the whole community on board? Oh, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about a lot of things right now. Mm -hmm. I think that as long as the perception was there that agents and their clients were sort of in lockstep with the Jim Crow conventions of the day, that there was no pushback. You know, you could have uh, maybe a white landowner with, you know, X number of sharecroppers, and agents had to work through that individual to reach potential clients. And sometimes there was support because that benefited the landowner. And mm-hmm. so even though that wasn't altruistic, it still gave agents an inroad. I think that the pushback would have occurred more openly in places like, um, and I was just reading about this, in Selma, mm-hmm. Alabama, when um, it started to become evident that African-Americans were making some substantial economic gains um, and maybe even starting to agitate a little more openly for, you know, political participation. 
And uh, that's when you saw the more visible, easily recognizable pushback. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, I I think as long as the perception was that everybody was in in line, um, it was okay. Uh, And then there's always going to be the element of society that just didn't like the idea of anybody paying any attention to the needs of of the black community. So, You chose 1928 to 1965. Is there a reason that it ended at 65? Um, I ended the scope of this presentation, at least, at 1965 for a couple reasons. One is that on paper, the USDA integrated. And I say on paper because Mm -hmm. in practice, you know, the segregated club still persisted. And the other reason is because, you know, I've been arguing for this concept of psychological emancipation. And then in the 60s is the period where that process materialized. And by that, I mean, you had African-American women, let's say, in, in Macon County, who had participated in home demonstration or even 4-H during the 20s, 30s, and 40s. I took a look at the voting registrations in the 1960s just to see, you know, were home demonstration women and 4-H club girls, were they registering to vote? And I did notice a difference when I compared like the early, maybe late 1940s to the 60s, there was a difference. Um, there were very few African-American women on voter registration, and they tended to be Tuskegee faculty or, you know, mm-hmm. um, more elite African-Americans. But by the 60s, I started to actually documented the number of women who were in home demonstration or 4-H that were registered to vote and noticed that there was a substantial increase in the number of women overall but that increase included quite a few women who were in those clubs. It looked different in Selma in that, yeah, there was the voter registration indicator, but also women who had been in 4-H or home demonstration became members of another farm agency that mm-hmm. had been discriminatory because of the way it allowed people to become qualified voters. Mm-hmm. But when that door opened, they stepped through that door. Uh, Another telltale sign in Selma was there was a declaration by African-Americans in Selma about things they wanted, and they published this spread in the newspaper, uh, and it was signed by African-Americans throughout the county. So I looked at the number of women who had been in those clubs who participated in that activity. It was enough women to be significant. And then the last example I can think of is Lowndes County, where the civil rights movement transpired totally different because the oppression was a little bit greater mm-hmm. and they had to fight back a little harder. And so um, I was able to correlate home demonstration club women with that activity as well. That's yeah. really cool. Uh, I love Yeah, and I only, I only scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to say, I mean, there's a lot more research to be done Mm -hmm. in that regard. It just occurred to me that you've become this piece of living history. You know, you've done all this work and this digging and this research and you've put all these points together and now you, you know, that's what you are. You're an expert in this area and I think it's really neat. Well, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. I have one last burning question though. You said in the beginning, you started really wondering when they're all together and there's nobody there watching, what did they talk about? 
you know, and did you ever find <laughs> any more info about, you know, the things that transpired when they were there together? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was something that, to me, is more implicit. Like, there are some reports that I read where there are testimonials where women sort of give the first-hand account of why they like being in a home demonstration club or what Mm -hmm. the club has helped them to do. And there's one woman who wrote about there was a club focused on earning a side income maybe selling your produce or, you know, some sort of little entrepreneurial venture. And she wrote about how she was able to send her daughter to school because of that activity. And so what that tells me is that that was talked about. Those conversations would have included, well, you know, I really want to send my child to school. I want my child to have an education beyond the one that I have. How can I make this happen? So I think it's more like reading between the lines mm-hmm. and just sort of extrapolating from behaviors and testimonials what was talked about in those club meetings. Um, and then, I mean, just in a practical sense, you get a room full of women together and they're going to talk about their families mm-hmm. and what's on their minds as far as what's going on in their communities. And they're going to just swap stories about their problems, and then at some point, in that setting in particular, which is a learning environment, somebody's going to say, well, you know, what do you think we need to do about this? Mm-hmm. So um, I don't expect to find, like, a diary that I can draw from. I have to draw from those testimonials and the behaviors and the projects that they did to get a handle on what they talked about in those meetings. And then, like you said, too, we can kind of fill in the blanks and just imagine I love to think about stuff that way. I'm a little bit of a romantic, you know, so I, I romanticize in the good times that they had together. And then it actually warms my heart a little bit, you know, to imagine that they had this camaraderie. And again, it goes back to these clubs and the 4-H club and the, the home demonstration programs being a route or an opportunity for these women to come together and learn and have joy and build friendships and impact their community because that's what I love so that when you said that that's exactly what I imagined them doing together. I'm glad to hear you say that because I certainly wanted to write about grassroots women and write about their their victories and their Mm -hmm. triumphs. You know you have to acknowledge the context of their oppression but at the same time I just really wanted to highlight their self-determination and their pursuit of freedom and what all that meant to them. And so I'm glad to hear you say that because it seems like I may have succeeded in in doing just that. Yeah, I think you did. And uh, I'm really thankful for your time. I very much enjoyed your presentation. I've enjoyed this conversation with you. And is there anything else you want to add for us? No, I just want to say again, thank you so much for having me. And I've enjoyed having this conversation. And I hope at some point I'm to get to meet face to face. And I do get to make that trip to Athens. I would love to visit at some point. I'd love to have you back. Um, hopefully get some more people to come and learn about this because I think it's worth sharing. And yeah, maybe I'll find out more about Ella McKissick, the, the Athens Limestone County Home Demonstration Agent. And you know, who was there before her or she was the first and who came after her. And so that would be really great. Wonderful. Well, we'll plan that in the future. Um, Thank you for your time and um, we'll hear from you again soon. 
All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Between the Stacks, a podcast from the Athens-Limestone County Public Library. To hear other recordings from our Library Voices podcast series, check out our website at alcpl.org. Library Voices is also now available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.